The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 220. Are you ready to think locally and act locally? Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And subscribe to my YouTube page at Brian McClanahan, where you can watch this podcast. If you don't want to find all those things on your own, just go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. At the top of the page, you'll find all my social media buttons. You can also give me an email address, and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can also support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com, where it's always free to enroll. And those that do enroll do get the best deals on forthcoming courses, and that's a big hint. Big news next week. Okay, so, going out to mclanahanacademy.com and roll there. Uh, also, you can support the show by going to brianmclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep the lights on, help keep the podcasts going. Anything you do contribute is greatly appreciated. And, of course, get your Brian McClanahan Show gear by going to redbubble.com. Just search for my name. You can find all of my Brian McClanahan Show logo on all kinds of cool stuff, from T-shirts to cups to skins to clocks to stickers, all kinds of cool things. And you can use my affiliate link for Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. It's LearnTrue, T-R-U-E, LearnTrueHistory.com. And if you go there, you're going to get 20-plus classes. You've used my link. You help support the show. You get all that stuff, philosophy, economics, history, all kinds of cool stuff. I teach there with Tom Woods, Kevin Goodsman, Brad Berzer, Jason Jewell, Bob Murphy, Jeff Herbner, all kinds of great faculty members. So going out to uh, learntruehistory.com and take advantage of that as well. And remember that McClanahan Academy has got uh, five classes for, for purchase. And so you can get those. That supports the show. But if you enroll for free, you're going to get the best deal. So you want that uh, when, uh, when new classes do come out. All right, well, let's talk about the topic of the week. I left off in the last show saying I've got another topic that's on a similar track of last time. It has to deal with nationalism, or has to do with nationalism, I should say. It deals with nationalism, and it's from a different perspective. It's from the neoconservative position. So you've got the lefties like Jill Lepore saying we need nationalism. It's leftist nationalism. And then you've got, quote-unquote, conservatives like Daniel Malik saying we need nationalism, which is liberal nationalism. It's leftist nationalism, neoconservatism. Now, Lepore doesn't, I'm sorry, uh, Malik doesn't think so. He's very critical of the left. But what he's actually saying is the exact same thing that Lepore is saying. There's no difference. Now, let me give you some background on Daniel Malik. He writes this piece in the New English Review, and I'm, I'm actually um, doing this because this was uh, put forward in a group that I'm involved with, and there were some questions about it, some things that Malik said that the, the individual could was wrestling with it and saying, you know, I don't really understand uh, how he's saying these things. Can you give me some arguments uh, that would help me uh, refute um, what uh, Malik is saying about the Confederate Constitution? And so um, I'll do that. Um, and explain some of the things that Malik says. And Malik just doesn't understand what he's talking about. Number one, Malik, uh, he, just to give you his background, he, is, he grew up in Quincy, Massachusetts, hence his perspective on things. Uh, he loves John Hancock, John Adams, and John Quincy Adams. John Hancock, fine. John Adams, John Quincy Adams, not so fine. Uh, he, his book, Agony and Eloquence, was supposedly a New York Times bestseller. I don't know if it was or not. He says it was. Uh, and it's published by Skyhorse. 
Um, so he's got a PhD in history, and he writes this piece for the New English Review about identity politics. And he says, what we don't need is identity politics in America. We don't need any of that. And I tend to agree with him there, that identity politics are dangerous, uh, except that the identity politics he's criticizing early on are its not really identity politics. Uh, Southerners did engage in a campaign where they said, you know, we're Southern, we're, but there was a reason for that. And he blames it all on the South, but he doesn't really understand his history. He's, he's skewed by where he's from. You see, where he's from really determines his identity politics. Um, so that's the point. So let me start with some of the things that are just completely wrong. Uh, and because I love doing this stuff. And again, if you find articles that you want me to comment on, simply send them to me. I would love to comment on stuff that uh, you may not understand or get or think, I can't respond to this. I don't, I don't have the background. Well, I'm going to tell you how to respond to someone like Daniel Malik. Uh, again, Daniel Malik is right on one thing, that the left is causing all kinds of problems in America. But what he's wrong in is saying that it was the South that was... This, this is the uh, Victor Davis Hanson position. We've got the left are all Confederates because it was the Confederates doing all these things, and it wasn't, it wasn't the, the Northerners. It was all the South's fault. It's all the South. The South is the specimen that has to be studied and understood because it's all the problems. So, he begins, quote, In the early years of the Republic, many believed that despite joining the Union and thus becoming a part of a greater whole, the several states of the Compact retained their sovereign status, and that this sovereignty allowed them to nullify federal laws should such laws be inconvenient or unfavorable to them. Well, this is completely false. That's not why they said they would nullify federal laws. They only nullify federal laws, not if they're inconvenient or unfavorable. They would nullify federal laws that were unconstitutional. That's the whole point. Look, Jefferson's position, and he brings up Jefferson, um, Jefferson's position was that the Alien and Sedition Acts were unconstitutional. Not because they were inconvenient or unfavorable, but unconstitutional. They were illegal. This was the American position from the colonial period to this time. In fact, in his own state of Massachusetts, if he actually understood early American history, and supposedly Daniel Malik, if I go to the end here and look at his bio, it says, uh, Daniel Malik is a historian of the founding generation. Well, he obviously doesn't understand much about the founding generation, because if he did, he'd understand the Stamp Act was resisted by nullification in Massachusetts. That the Suffolk Resolves, which came out of, let me think, what state? Massachusetts, were nullification. Why? Because those things were unconstitutional. The Suffolk Resolves were resisting the coercive acts, which were unconstitutional. Gee. That's, we call that <clears throat> nullification. So here is Daniel Malik not understanding anything about what he's supposedly an expert on. It's sad, really. It's really sad that people run around saying, well, I'm, a, <clears throat> I'm an expert on the founding period, and uh, I really, I, I, I mean, I know all about this. Uh, and so I'm going to write an article as an expert on the founding period when I really don't know anything about Oh, he's also an expert, supposedly. Let me get to this. He's also an expert on... The, uh, the Civil War. Well, he doesn't know anything about that either. <laughs> so, uh, this is problematic. Right? Daniel Malik is not... I'm not saying he's not a bright guy. He just doesn't know anything. 
the nature of the surrender of state sovereignty was a source of much disagreement until the issue was finally resolved on the bloody battlegrounds of the civil. It wasn't resolved. It didn't answer the, the legal question. It, I mean, you, you don't answer questions by uh, bludgeoning someone. That's not the way you solve problems. I mean, look, this issue has never really been solved because the Constitution still exists. Now, you could say, well, we've amended it, and maybe that... But it didn't really take care of the issue then because we don't have anything repealing the 10th Amendment. Nothing has repealed that. We don't have anything repealing the ratification debates. Nothing's repealed that. So we haven't really resolved the issue. The Constitution still supposedly exists in the same structure and form as it existed before the war began. No one, you can't surrender sovereignty. It can't be surrendered. Nullification was first suggested by Jefferson in a letter to Madison on April 23rd, 1799? Really? Hmm. This is when he first suggested nullification? 1799? Um... What about the Kentucky Resolutions before 1799? Oh, well, no. That, I guess it, what about the suffrage? See, this is where Malik doesn't even know his own, doesn't even know history. He, he doesn't understand. Jefferson wrote, fully confident that the good sense of the American public and their attachment to those very rights which are now we are now vindicating will, before it shall be too late, rally around with us the true principles of our federal compact. But determined we were we to be disappointed in this, to sever ourselves from that union we so much value rather than give up the rights of self-government which we have reserved and in which alone we see liberty, safety, and happiness. When he wrote the letter to Madison, Jefferson was then vice president under John Adams and was actively, though surreptitiously, fighting against the Alien Sedition Acts, laws which Jefferson himself had been a signatory. Uh, Senator from Massachusetts and former U.S. President John Quincy Adams described Jefferson's hyperpartisan and behind-the-scenes efforts in an 1836 speech before the combined Congress as, at the time, profoundly secret. Well, they were. Um, uh, how did how did Jefferson? Uh, th- this is unclear. How did Jefferson sign the Alien and Sedition Acts? He was vice president. The only way he would sign anything is if the he had to cast a tie-breaking vote in the Senate. Hmm. That's strange. It's very strange. Uh, Jefferson's opposition to the Alien Sedition Acts become such a cause celebre for him that breaking the Union over it was not out of the question. Madison rejected this course and suggested Jefferson that such a view was too extreme. Jefferson later, later told another friend that on account of Madison's disapproval, he withdrew from this principle. He did? Oh. But, of course, Madison also advocated nullification as well. But, you know, hey, who's counting? Uh, then he gets into a whole bunch of other nonsense about South Carolina's nullification. And he says, uh, the state-centric identity viewpoint essentially, ma- essentially made the Union a fungible rather than a solid construct. This was the tragic identity politics of that time that the founders and their descendants were unable to circumvent, repress, or resolve. Uh, no, no. Um, it, it was a, a compact between states, as the Declaration clearly said in the last paragraph, the Treaty of Paris verified, and the Articles of Confederation codified, and the ratification debates, debates verified, that the Constitution was not creating anything similar to a national government. This is what we know from the historical evidence. I guess if Daniel Malik actually was a quote-unquote expert on the founding period, he would know this. 
But I don't think he is. That's the real problem with Daniel Malik. I mean, look, the guy's right on, on bashing the left. We need to do that. But he doesn't really understand American history. He's been reading too much of the Jaffaite nonsense of, of the early founding, which is the neoconservative position that we have a proposition nation. Now, I get into all of this stuff in the Declaration of Independence course that I teach. Uh, I get into all of this in the forthcoming, at least in one, sl- one unit, one lecture, in the forthcoming Reconstruction and Recreation. That's the big hint, the big news. Um, so I get into this as well, but I also talk about it in the War for Southern Independence class. Uh, I get into it in um, the class on secession. I talk about this over and over again. I mean, it's one of the common themes that I have. Uh, he talks about how Lee, uh, you know, said he was going to side with Virginia. Now, here's where it gets really interesting because he blames again the South for for identity politics in America because he doesn't understand that the South was simply reacting. So he says this, in fact, radicals in the South have been agitating for secession, using sectional state identity politics to diminish citizens' loyalty to and identification with the concept of union and the federal authority at Washington for decades prior to the outbreak of war. Okay, so let's get into this. And I talked about this in the last podcast. 1794, Rufus King, Oliver Ellsworth, corner John Taylor of Caroline in a cloakroom in the Senate and say, John, the union's not working for us in New England. How about we part ways? How about we in New England, through identity politics, identifying themselves with the North, say we're out? Now, even before that, in the first Congress, people like Fisher Ames and others from New England were highly upset that their great cod fisheries and other things, molasses, things would have been taxed that they needed to essentially carry out their activities. They weren't too happy about that. If there was going to be some type of financial burden. They didn't want it on the North. This was all about sectional politics. They recognized themselves as sectional. You go back to the Philadelphia Convention, you'll find that Governor Morris said in the Philadelphia Convention, hey, if all these sectional things be real, then let's take leave of each other. They just didn't do it, but they were real because they talked about it over and over again. George Mason of Virginia was worried about navigation laws because he understood navigation laws were going to be foisted on the South and that was going to harm the South so the North could fatten their wallets. You see, this is all about sectional politics. It all existed before the South supposedly invented this stuff. I mean, where does he come up with these things? Well, I know because this is what the neoconservatives all say. Oh, and also the lefties like Joe Lepore. Because their entire history is stupid. Because it fits a convenient narrative. And that convenient narrative is South bad, North good. Southern sectionalism bad, Northern sectionalism good. We ignore what the North was, profiting on slavery, racist just like the South, because the South supposedly was racist and slaveholding. But the North, no, they weren't. Of course, every single state in 1776 had this thing called slavery. Every single one. And Northerners made substantial amounts of money on the slave trade, which was seen as more hideous than slavery itself at the time. This is just completely stupid. Then, he says, that the seceded states, after declaring their reassertion of their sovereign character and ordinance of secession, then joined a new union of like-minded states from which secession was implied to be forbidden in the new Constitution's preamble, 
It's perhaps a tra tragic irony of that particular national nightmare. Now, this is where this individual in this group said, I don't understand he said this. How do I refute this? Because, well, let's read the preamble to the Confederate Constitution. It says simply this. Quote, We the people of the Confederate States, each state acting in its sovereign and independent character, in order to form a permanent federal government, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, and provide the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invoking the favor of God and Almighty God, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the Confederate States of America. So, where does it imply that there is no secession? To form, he says, in his mind, to form a permanent federal government. So by saying it's a permanent federal government, that means you can't secede from it? No, that's not what it says. It means they're going to have a permanent federal government because when the Constitution was written, there was a temporary Confederate government already in place, a provisional government. So this was the permanent government that replaced the provisional government, but not that it denied secession because each state was acting in its sovereign and independent character. So the preamble doesn't imply secession to be forbidden. Secession is uh, never even discussed. And because it's not discussed, it can happen. You see, one of the arguments for secession and where it's completely legal is that it's not denied in either the U.S. Constitution or the Confederate Constitution. It doesn't say states cannot secede from this document. States cannot secede from this union. We have a permanent federal government. The U.S. Constitution created a permanent federal government. Unless it was abolished by the states, which this one could be too, unless it was abolished by the states, it's permanent. That doesn't mean you can't secede from it. Uh, all that they're doing is saying we have, the, the government didn't disappear. I mean, this is one of the things that gets me. Secession destroyed the U.S. government. It did? Um, then what was Lincoln doing? Or what was the Congress doing during the war? If it destroyed the U.S. government, then what were these, were these people just, uh, you know, illegitimate? Were, were, I mean, what were they? What was the U.S. Army and Navy? What about the financial? What about the U.S. Treasury? Was all that stuff just not really existing and it was a nightmare? I mean, it was a national nightmare. What, what, did people wake up from this and it, this stuff didn't actually exist? These are the arguments these idiots can't answer. These are the questions these idiots can't answer. Um, if you said it destroyed the government, then what were these things? But no, it did not, it did not deny secession. A permanent federal government is to replace the temporary, the provisional Confederate government that was in existence before this in February of 1861. But the states were acting their sovereign independent character, just like they were under the Articles of Confederation. So they're saying, look, this is what we really meant by this. Uh, and I've gone over the Confederate Constitution in, in great detail in my course, American Constitutions, which is also at McClanahan Academy. I go over this along with the Articles of Confederation, along with the U.S. Constitution. That's the meatiest course I offer, and I did it because of these very questions. So if you want to get that in more detail, get that particular course. But... Malik continues later on. Long before secession and civil war, secessionists, identity politics, radicals stoked the fires of discontent and discord by bashing the Union, Northerners, Yankee culture, the Northern states, and propagandizing on the superiority of Southern people, culture, and institutions, including slavery. It's all the fire eaters beforehand. He says, this is, this is it. This, the reason that we had identity politics because of the South. Um, I seem to remember William, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Charles Sumner uh, standing up in the Senate in, uh, 18, in, in uh, 1855, 1854, 
and calling uh, the Southerners the drunken vomit of an uneasy civilization. Hmm. That's a pretty strong remark about the superiority of the North. And you see, Southerners were called devils. Southerners were called all kinds of nasty names. They were portrayed as the, uh, the uh, other in America. They were not uh, really welcome. Uh, they were not ones who would be uh, considered to be a good part of America. This is how Northerners portrayed the South. Uh, this is where Oliver Ellsworth and Rufus King said, look, we want out. You guys are different from us. You're different from us. We want out. What about 1800 when uh, the North tried to block the election of Thomas Jefferson to give it to Aaron Burr because Jefferson was a Southerner? What about in 1803 when the Essex Junto was trying to block the admission of Louisiana because that would add a whole lot of supposedly Southern states? What about in 1815 when Daniel Webster and other Northerners got together at Hartford, Connecticut and wanted to secede from the Union because the South was the other. You see, Northerners, long before Southerners got involved in any type of reactionary politics to Northern attacks, uh, were hypersensitive to their section. And they believed their section to be superior to the South. But you see, someone who grew up in Massachusetts probably doesn't know this. He should, but he probably doesn't. Because you see, the national identity stuff is deep in places of the deep north. They, this is the treasury of virtue that they have, which is really counterfeit virtue, but it is the treasury of virtue. Ridiculous. He says, the relentless agitation against the Union, the bitter criticism of Yankee culture and Northerners in general, the supremacist declarations about Southern people and culture, and the inherent sovereignty of rights of each state finally bore its grotesque fruit. The national tragedy that most re reasonable people were desperate to avoid finally came. Yeah, it's all about this. The South did it, right? The South, it's all because Southerners were picking on the North. That the North just, you know, gosh darn it, we got to, this thing's got, uh, this is a problem. It's the South. Um, I seem to think, I remember, that the South left and they asked to be left alone. So wh what happened? Oh, yeah. The Lincoln, uh, the Lincoln administration sent troops to Fort Pickens. And they sent troops to Fort Sumter. But you know, Buchanan avoided war by saying, look, if you don't provision those forts, we won't attack them. Because we'll just we'll, we'll try to work this out. No, no. Lincoln said, we're provisioning those forts, and if you shoot at us, you start the war. Even though it was understood that those were in Confederate territory. Lincoln just didn't accept the fact that the Union had been, uh, the South had left the Union. Right? He didn't accept that. He continues, it's disturbing to see our, our national history cycling, regurgitating, as it were, old conflicts, old rigidities, dismissed and discredited failures. Oh, yeah, that's, that's what we're doing here. Uh, the left are just a whole bunch of Confederates, you see. The left are just not interested in real national American identity. And so what we need, what we really need is national identity, neoconservative national identity. Uh, and that neoconservative national identity would rely on uh, Bob Marley. <laughs> he brings up Bob Marley and how Bob Marley tried to unify Jamaica in the uh, in the 1970s, and that didn't work. All kinds of problems in Jamaica. 
Uh, but, you know, there was an attempt. We got to get these people together holding hands at a Bob Marley concert. Uh, uh, excuse me why I light my spliff. Uh, and uh, that's what we have to do uh, to, um, to, make, uh, the world, to make the world great again. Uh, we need neoconservative uh, proposition nation nonsense. You see, um, but this is, this is where nationalism whether you have leftist nationalism or neoconservative nationalism, it's the same thing. We have to have a national identity. That national identity has to be the South was bad, the North was good, uh, Lincoln's great, Southerners bad, Southerners started the whole thing, Southerners are all the problems, this is Southern. This is Victor Davis Hanson, we've got Confederate, uh, we've got uh, Democrat Confederates, we've got uh, leftist Confederates, all these people are just Confederates. In reality, the Democrats are, na- are advocating a nationalist position. You have to agree with them or they're going to silence you. It's French revolutionary style nationalism. What what uh, Malik is talking about here, what he's saying we need is what the left really wants. They don't want separation. They don't want that at all. They want everyone to think like them. And if you don't think like them in their version of diversity, they're going to try to do everything they can to discredit you. They're going to try to force you out of your job. They're going to dox you. They're going to silence you. They're going to deplatform you. They're going to do everything they can to ensure that you don't have a voice. Now, why are they going to do that? Because your agenda is opposite of theirs, and their agenda is nationalism. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, even though he says that you know she's identity politics, she's also a nationalist. The Green New Deal is a nationalist agenda. It's to make everyone like them. It's not about saying, okay, well, look, we're different, so we're going we're gonna to have our own little enclave here in Bronx, New York, uh, and we'll just live like we want to in the Bronx or Brooklyn, wherever you want, and you can live exactly like you want in Columbia, South Carolina. No, that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen because that's not what neoconservatives want. It's not what lefties want. What they want is control of the national reins of power, and they want to use that power to force their version of America, their will, on everybody else. That is American national. That's Hamiltonianism. That's American nationalism. The left wants it. The right wants it. The neoconservatives want it. The leftist nationalists want it, like Jill Lepore. They all want this stuff. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren. They all want nationalism. They really don't believe in anything but that. But it's how they can use the reins of power to force their agenda on everybody else. It's one-size-fits-all government, whether it's from the left or the supposed right, it doesn't matter. In each case, the South is bad and needs to be discredited. It's one thing they all agree with. When in reality, the South was always the backbone, the flywheel that held the entire thing together. As we had an America that believed in federalism, the thing worked. We didn't have all these issues because we had the states being able to hold the rest of it together. But what you started having as one section said, you know what? We're going to dominate the government. We're going to control you. We're going to force our will on you. That's when it all started to fall apart. It was actually nationalism that did that. But a fake nationalism because it was really sectionalism. It's northern sectionalism. He continues, one can perceive the union of the American states as a fellowship. The purpose of the fellowship has always been about mutual security and mutual benefit. Well, I mean, this is what John C. Calhoun agreed with. He stood up and said, the union next to our liberty, most dear. May we, may we always remember that it can only be preserved by distributing equally the benefits and burdens of the union. Well, I mean, Calhoun would agree with that. But no, it's these fire eaters are the problem. It is and always has been a quest for human freedom 
in a world in which such things have never had never previously been codified and never properly made available or nor made feasible or functional or sustainable. Um, there's this thing called uh, Great Britain. There's the Anglo-American tradition, the Magna Charta, this thing called the Magna Charta, thing called the English Bill of Rights. No, no. You see, what the founding generation was fighting for was the maintenance of the traditional English civil liberties, the ancient constitutions, the rights of Englishmen. Yeah, we had never had that before. We created that. It's creation of America. This, I mean, this guy is drinking way too much Rush Limbaugh uh, Kool-Aid here. Way too much. There are always those who oppose such things and prefer the fake security of a powerful governments or religions to dictate thoughts and decisions that are by natural right the purview of the individual. The quest stands upon the edge of a knife, stray but a little, and it will fail to the ruin of all, yet hope remains while the company is true, he says. Um, I do agree that people are looking, but I mean, this guy contradicts himself. If he believes in that, then he has to believe in the South in what the South was saying they were doing, which was leaving the Union because that Union was going to violate the original Constitution. I mean, so what do we want? What do you want, Malik? You have to make up your mind. Then he gets into some other stuff. You know, you've got the Chinese. You've got um, you've got Bob Marley. Uh, one of the things he says here is really funny. One of the greatest tragedies of American history was born the day the country began. An irrepressible conflict, according to later Secretary of State William Seward, Oh, yeah. It was born the day the country began. Uh, regardless of the lessons of history, regardless of the many failed systems and ideologies and of their casualty counts and tens of millions, all widely unknown and ignored with the, within the American left, there is a new irrepressible conflict. Uh, but, you know, he's saying it was slavery. The day that the uh, country began, we had slavery, and it was all about the South. It was slavery. Forget about Massachusetts's role in all that. You know, no. No, we don't need to know that. Uh, William Seward's also a moron. Okay, uh, so we get to the end, and there isn't really much to say here. Um, wait, when I just when I when I uh, when I quoted that, he quoted from uh, the Lord of the Rings. So uh, the problem with Daniel Malik is that Daniel Malik doesn't know much about American history, other than what he thinks he knows about American history, which isn't a lot. A little bit of knowledge is a very dangerous thing. And Daniel Malik has a little bit of knowledge, and he's able to write a book and think that he knows something, um, and he just doesn't. So I, I, I agree with Malik in that the left is a problem, um, but the origins of that are not to be found in the South. And what the left wants is not some type of little individual enclaves. What the left wants is complete control of the national identity. It's what Jill Lepore says. We need to have a leftist nationalism. That's what... That's what the left wants. If we really had a real federation of states, we could, we could handle these differences. If we thought locally and act locally, we could handle these differences and not have a national crisis every time something happens. But that's not the agenda of the left. It's not what they want at all. And so this is why think locally, act locally is so important, why you need to uh, just practice that every time you can. Tell your friends about it. Talk about it. Don't worry about what the center does. Start, start fixing your own backyard. That's the real American tradition. And uh, that's what the founding generation thought, too. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. I will see you next time. <laughs>